Well, please open up your Bibles to Ruth 3, and we're looking at just Ruth and Naomi seeking rest, seeking rest. Sometimes the trajectory of history has been changed by risky plans that in the providence of God work. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December the 7th, 1941, the U.S. was looking for a way to strike back quickly at Japan. But the problem was, much of the Pacific fleet was damaged or in still in the water, sunk at Pearl Harbor. We had few ships that would be able to, to strike at, at Japan's mighty Imperial Navy. We also didn't have any long-range bombers that could fly from Hawaii to Japan. So the Navy and the Army Air Force, they were combined at that time, they went to work on a plan. And their plan was to take, to use the B-25 on an aircraft carrier. B-25, B stands for bomber. Bombers usually aren't on aircraft carriers. But the B-25 had a short takeoff range, 300 feet was all it needed to take off. And it had a wingspan that was short enough to actually be used on an aircraft carrier. It was a risky plan. They went to work on that in January, began training. The mission would be dangerous. So all of the air crews had to be all volunteer. They may not come back. They had no trouble filling those slots because of all the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle began leading and training his crews to lead that attack. It, by April 2nd, their task force was formed and sailed out of San Francisco. Just to give you an idea of where we were at that time, the Navy, instead of leaving at night in the stealth of night, because there were Japanese spies, instead of leaving in the stealth of night, because of their inexperienced crew, the captain of the aircraft carrier was afraid to sail at night out of San Francisco Bay. So he waited for daylight so that the new crew uh, could safely get them out. The task force sailed and met up with another task force from the USS Nimitz, uh, not Nimitz, uh, Enterprise. And that task force sailed. Their plan was to get within 400 miles of Japan, launch these bombers. The bombers had been stripped of everything non-essential. The bombers couldn't land on an aircraft carrier. And so this is a one-way mission. They were to fly over to Japan, bomb it. And they were either going to land in China or Russia, and Russia said no way because they had a, some kind of a non-aggression act with Japan, so Russians didn't want any part of that. Um, so the plan was to, to land in China, uh, to crash land in China, wherever the planes would end up. So as they sailed towards Japan, they got within 600 miles when they were spotted by a Japanese frigate who then notified the Imperial Navy of the approach of these two aircraft carriers. Keep in mind, those two aircraft carriers represented 50% of the U.S. Pacific Fleet at that time. So the leader of that task force could not risk the loss of the those two aircraft carriers. And so at 600 miles out, he ordered the launch of all those bombers. They successfully launched, and the two aircraft carriers and their task force bugged out and were not able to be found by the Japanese 
um, military. Now, the Japanese were not expecting an attack from that distance. They were expecting the carriers to come within 200 miles. So when the bombers came over Japan, it completely caught them by surprise. The Japanese had forward deployed most of their defenses out much further and only had very inexperienced pilots uh, who were not uh, any kind of match for the, the well-trained pilots of Doolittle's raid. Uh, they carried out their bombing, and 15 of the 16 planes uh, crash-landed. One accidentally, I think, went to Russia because of their fuel. They couldn't go anywhere else. They landed safely and were interned by the Russians, I think, for the remainder of the war. Uh, they were not mistreated, but they just weren't allowed to leave. But that that little risky plan worked. Did it do a lot of damage in Japan? No, not really. Not a lot of physical damage. They did hit targets. They did slow the Japanese down. But more significantly, they lowered the morale of the Japanese and forced them to redeploy forces back to the homeland that they could have used elsewhere for aggressive acts. And largely, it buoyed the spirits of the American people. And really significantly, it led to the, to the Japanese making the decision to try to lure the United States in to a, a battle where they could wipe out all of our aircraft carriers. And you know that as the Battle of Midway, which did not go very well for the Japanese. But without Doolittle's raid, they may not have been lured into that attack at Midway. Now, what does all this have to do with the Book of Ruth? Well, it's a good example of how the trajectory of history, in this case World War II, was changed by a risky plan that in the providence of God worked. And that's what you're going to see in the book of Ruth this morning. Let's just read that together. Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young women you were, sorry, and now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young woman you were, behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes, and you shall go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be known that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. So spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say, I will do for you. For all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now it is true. I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night. And it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. 
But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As Yahweh lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. Then she went into the city and she came Then she came to her mother-in-law and said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Then she said, sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. Well, this morning we're going to look at Ruth 3. With, again, noticing the providence of God over the decisions of people, over the plans of people even. And this this uh, act, if you would call it there, falls into three different scenes. And you can kind of see a paragraph down probably in your Bible, verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 13, and then verses 14 to 18. We'll just follow along with this story as we trace the working of God in these women's and Boaz's lives. So remember the setting. If you just look for a minute at verse 23 of chapter 2. The setting is Ruth had been gleaning in the harvest field. She had received, uh, she had just providentially been directed to, to be gleaning in, in the harvest field uh, of, of Boaz. And God providentially directed her there. And Boaz received her so kindly and told her to, to continue to, to glean in the fields, in his fields, not go anywhere else, that she was to stay with, with his uh, servant women. They were doing the work, that she was to stay with him, that he had protected her, he had issues ordered, he had issued orders for his, for the men not to touch Ruth, that he Boaz protected her and provided that shelter that she needed. And so she had gone back day after day through the barley harvest and then through the wheat harvest. So all total, she was in the field somewhere around six weeks, give or take a, a week. So six weeks, she's there and there's no further contact. Verse 23, look at it. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What's missing from that statement? Any further contact with Boaz? There was this great hope that Boaz might actually rescue Ruth. You kind of see it when, when uh, in Naomi's words, uh, she says in, in verse 20, she says, the man is our relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. So there's this hope that Naomi, Naomi has that something's going to happen with Boaz. And yet at the end of six weeks, nothing has happened. And there's the prospect that without you know, Ruth going out in the fields, there'll be very little contact, that, that potential for contact for that Ruth would have with Boaz. So Naomi goes to work on a plan. She goes to work on a plan to get Ruth to have a direct conversation with Naomi. Now look at Naomi's words, her mother-in-law. She says, my daughter, and she's, again, just the term itself just shows you the endearment between Ruth and Naomi. She calls her her daughter, although she's a daughter-in-law. She is her daughter. She's treating her as a daughter. She says, shall I not seek a state of rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, remember, 
there is this familiar language of rest found in verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter one, where Naomi actually prays for uh, Ruth and Orpah to find rest in the homes of their husbands. So they were widows. So her prayer was that they would both find husbands who would provide a state of rest, a place of rest for them. And so what Naomi is doing here is actually going to work on a plan. So in chapter one, you see her praying for that. In chapter three, you actually see her taking some initiative towards that. Chapter two, Ruth took the initiative. Chapter three, Naomi's taking the initiative. She wants Ruth to have a place of rest. Now, in our society, um, oftentimes women deride the fact that a man wants to provide uh, rest. But that's really how God has designed it. God has designed marriage for a husband to provide a state of rest. What is a state of rest? A, a state of rest is described this way by Daniel Block. He said it speaks of tranquility, peace, satisfaction, and security that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband, unquote. So that is really the epitome of what, what God created marriage for. Yes, for creation. Yes, to satisfy the, the longing of the, of the man not being alone. But he created marriage for the man to provide protection, to provide security, to provide tranquility and peace for his wife. So it gives us a glimpse of one of the God-given purposes of marriage. A, a husband is to, is to provide this for his wife. So that her soul can be at rest. When I say her soul, I don't mean just spiritually, but, but her whole being can be at rest. Now, in our day and age, just like day and ages when Boaz is Ruth days, some men don't get this. They just don't get it. Um, they, and even some who consider themselves to be Christians, they mistreat their wives. Some even beat their wives. Right? And they treat their wives despicably. These things should not be. Men, understand that part of your role as a husband is to provide the place of rest for your wife. That's your role, God-given role. To the extent that you can do that, you are to be a blessing to her. Um, wives, understand that if you're in a place where your husband is not doing this, right, you are to get help. Some women have been told they should just be silent and be submissive to their husbands. That's not what Scripture says. There is a degree of submission that is required, but you do not have to suffer silently. Your husband is not to abuse you. And if you're in that kind of situation, I just need to say that you please seek help. There are people within this church that would want to help you. And maybe you guys... Maybe there's nothing going on like that here. I don't know what goes on in your homes, but you probably know somewhere where something like this is going on. It is far too common. And with the rise of fake Christianity, there is more of this going on in people's homes than they think. They come here, when I say here, I mean just church in general. They come to church and they just put on a fake face. They put on a fake face that everything's okay, their marriage is hunky-dory and everything's going well, but at home... It's a disaster. So just just know, dear women, that God wants to provide that rest for you. And he wants 
the church to help provide that, to help come along your side, your husband, not to slap him on the hand, but to encourage him to, to know Christ and be obedient to Christ's word. And if he doesn't know Christ, to, to win him to Christ. But just realize that God is the God who provides rest. And he wants to provide that for you. And men, take up that challenge. And young men, know that that's your goal. Our world puts a focus of marriage on the sexual aspect of marriage. And though those are joyful, realize that there's there's a greater purpose that God has for you as a husband. And that is that you are to be God to your wife. And what I mean by that, you are to be her rest provider. Yes, depending on the Lord. Yes, depending on every all of his resources to provide. But you are to provide that rest for her. Train yourself. Think about that. Stop thinking selfishly about marriage. Go back to Ruth. So Ruth, uh, Naomi is seeking to provide this kind of rest for Ruth. It's the rest that she prayed for. And she's again making the connection with Boaz. Look at verse 2. Uh, she see, she says, and now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose young woman you were? So she's pointing Ruth back to how kind Boaz was and not just his kindness, not just his faithfulness, but also the fact that he is a kinsman. So here's just pointing out that he is a relative. He's not a close relative, but he is a relative. And that's what she's pointing out by using this this term. Um, keep in mind, she's not thinking of him just as a relative because in chapter 2, verse 20, she calls him a kinsman redeemer. Not just a kinsman, but a kinsman redeemer. So she comes up with a plan for Ruth um, to meet Boaz at the threshing floor at night. And that's where the risk comes in. Now, we don't live in an agricultural society like this. And, if, and even if you did, you'd use modern equipment. So we need to understand what what is a threshing floor. A threshing floor was a flat, hard surface. Typically, it was they would like to find a big, flat rock if they could. If they couldn't do that, then they would find hard clay, uh, a place that was flat. They would bring uh, the barley or the wheat that they had just taken from the field. They had harvested. They would put that down in in portions, and then they would run a sledge um, over that what they had just harvested, little bit by little bit. And the sledge was a wooden sledge pulled by a mule or a donkey or something like that. And that sledge had stones that were embedded on the bottom side of it. So the purpose was to take the straw and the grain that they had just harvested and to break it up into little pieces. And so the, the, they would just, the mule or the horse would just pull that sledge around in circles until all that was broken up. Once it was sufficiently broken up, then the winnowing takes place. Winnowing involves taking a, a winnowing fork and, and the farmer is, is getting down there and shoving it into all that was broken up and he's throwing it into the air. And when he throws that into the air, the small pieces that are no good are, are taken away by the wind and the little kernels, which is really what they're after, the kernels fall down. And that pro- they just keep repeating that process. And when it, the pieces are too, too small for the fork to grab it, when there's enough straw that's gone, then they use a winnowing shovel to do the same thing. Now, threshing floors were often on a rocky uh, hilltop because that's where the wind was best. They didn't want the wind to be so strong that even the grains got blown away. 
but they needed wind. Without wind, everything falls in the same place. So they needed wind, and they would often build these um, on uh, hilltops. And so this is, this is the process that was planned to go on at night. Why was Boaz doing it at night? We don't really know. But sometimes that's when the wind was best. Uh, threshing floors, because of their complexity and uniqueness of the location that you needed, they were communal property. They were, they were places that were shared. The pictures that we have of these um, uh, from, from you know, the early 1900s when they were still using this method, they were, they're communal, they're large areas. So farmers from all over Bethlehem would have come to the threshing floor, so they would have had to share the threshing floor. And, and so maybe Boaz went there not just because of the wind, but because that's when it was available. But that, that's what was going on. Now, look at the instructions that, that Naomi gives her. She says, so you, sh- you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. Right? So let's understand what's going on. Um, th- some of this is very practical. One of it is in a very hot environment. The fact that someone would bathe is common sense if you were preparing for a date. Right? It's just, it just common sense. Uh, the anointing is really uh, has more to do. You could anoint for religious purposes like in a temple, but this anointing had to do with perfume more likely. Right? This was scented olive oil, again, with the intent of covering up foul body odors. So you're you're basically... Uh, you know, putting your best foot forward, so to speak. But why the best clothes? Right? Again, you're putting your best foot forward. But keep in mind, Ruth and Naomi, though they probably had more than one change of clothes, were pretty much destitute widows. Not sure what they had and what they came with. Remember, they came from Moab. We're not sure exactly what kind of clothing they had. So it's not like Ruth looking at her closet and trying to decide... Which dress to put on? Do I wear that one or do I wear that one? Do I wear the red one or the blue one? Or the purple one or the black one? Right? It's probably not like that, like we would, would do, uh, like you did on your first date. You're trying to think through, what do I wear? But she's, she is wanting to provide um, an attractive appeal to Boaz to present herself in that way. Um, but that's not all she says. And her plan is to this, that Ruth would go down, wash herself, anoint herself, put on, put on her best clothes. And the word clothes, by the way, is really um, a, a word for like an, a cloak, an, an outer cloak. And so we don't really know all the specifics with that, but the, that outer cloak um, could be just a common outer cloak that was worn um, to keep yourself warm at night. But the fact that Naomi is highlighting it here, it's probably some kind of special cloak. Right? That's why it's usually translated best clothes. But it, but it is that outer cloak that, that Ruth would need to stay warm at night on the threshing, threshing floor. The threshing floor wasn't in a building. It was outdoors. Right? So she, being at night, out on the threshing floor, she would need that to stay warm. Right? But then she goes on and she says, but do not make, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So there's some, again, common sense here. The best time to uh, to appeal um, to a man is when he has a full stomach and he's satisfied, right? That's when you make your appeal. So this is some of this is just common sense um, that you would do today. You try to ask if you got a like a question, a big question. You're not sure how uh, the man's gonna gonna answer. You pick a good time. You don't pick a time when he's like busy. You don't pick a time when he's busy eating or drinking. But but you get the point. Uh, being selective about when 
uh, he, he was asked, she was going to ask him the time. Now, so she, she tells her to go down to the threshing floor. And the reason that she says down is because Jerusalem, I mean, sorry, Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, wrong city, Bethlehem, would have been built on a hill for defensive purposes. Bethlehem was a walled city, and it would have been built on, on whatever hill was in that area for defensive purposes. So anytime you left Bethlehem, you were going down, at least temporarily. Um, so going down to the threshing floor makes sense in that. So she was to go there, and she was to take a very stealthy approach. Why the stealthy approach? Uh, what was she doing? Well, it was at night. Right? And keep in mind that Boaz is even concerned for her safety in the daytime. But now it's in the evening. Right? So there's an element of, of this at which it, Ruth could be in a bad position, a bad spot, if someone were to see her. Or even if Boaz were to see her before, it, it would provide a, a bit of embarrassment to him or and also to Ruth. There's an element of which this would have been seen as almost inappropriate, even by that culture, what they were doing. And that's why at the end, you know, Boaz says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Right? So there's an element of this in which it was very risky. If Ruth was seen to be there, people would come to the, all the wrong conclusions. Because there were threshing floors, although this one might not have been one of those, there were threshing floors in Israel that when they weren't used for threshing, or even when the men were resting, certain women of the night, that we know as prostitutes, would come visit the threshing floors. So it is it is certainly uh, Boaz and, and Ruth wanted to avoid any kind of association like that at all. And, and you see uh, that it's right on the edge of what people are, are thinking, even as they read this uh, today. Like, what what is going on? Well, I can assure you that nothing risque... Um, inappropriate went on. After all, we're dealing with Boaz, who is a, a model of righteousness uh, within this within those times. And you're also dealing with Ruth, who is known for her faithfulness, who is known as a woman, an excellent woman, as Boaz would say later. So this, the stealthy approach is just to try to hide the fact that Ruth is there and so that only Boaz would know that Ruth came the threshing floor. That's ultimately why why all the stealthiness, right? To get Ruth one on one with with Boaz on the threshing floor, so she could talk to him. Something she hadn't done before. The other conversation was in in front of others. So she was to she was to go. She was to wait until he lied down, and then he was to she was to approach her. Uh, she was to um, uncover his feet and then lie down. Now all this is strange to us. Indeed, it's strange. There is no like Old Testament um, cultural norm where this would be okay, like cultural habit. Like this isn't routine. This is odd. This isn't how women found wives in those days. Okay, this is just different. This is unique. He's telling her to go down to uncover his feet. Right? Why uncover his feet? Right? Uncovering his feet, he would have lied down. He would have put his cloak over him. And he would have uh, gone to sleep. So he puts the cloak over. She's she. It's just a subtle, indirect way to get his attention. Right? She's not going up to him. Um, her intent wasn't to startle, stand over him, and you know, kind of poke at him, and say, "I need to have a conversation with you." It was just to be quiet. It's to be subtle. And then Naomi's instruction said, uh, "Then he'll tell you what to do." Well, we'll find out if he 
actually does or doesn't in, in a moment. But notice how Ruth responds. All that I say to you, I will do. So really what we see here is, is in this section is just in, a, in, a, in God's providence, Ruth and Naomi are trusting Yahweh to provide. They're looking to him to be blessed. They're looking to him to provide the place of rest. But they're also planning. They're trusting and they're planning. So in a sense, I want you to just to see that. That trusting God doesn't remove the necessity to plan. And sometimes they even plan something that, that if it went poorly, it wouldn't work out so well. It wouldn't work out so well for Ruth if this didn't go well. So trusting in Yahweh's providence and loving kindness doesn't negate our responsibility to plan. And on the other side, it doesn't negate our responsibility to proactively take care of others. You know, you can't just say, uh, you see somebody, a brother or sister in need, you can't just say, oh, oh God will take care of them. God is so faithful. God will take care of them. No, James addresses that, right? He says, if you see your brother or sister in need, and then you do nothing, right? how is that faith? Right? Faith provides what is needed. So you see here Naomi and Ruth working both in, in faith and working towards Ruth. And Naomi sees a Ruth's need and is working to overcome that need. So they're, they're trusting and planning is a good way to summarize verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 um, on to verse 13, we see a section is called trusting and executing the plan. Trusting and executing uh, the plan. So look at what happens. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did all that her mother-in-law told her to do. All that her mother-in-law commanded her to do. It's even a bit stronger, just told her, commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank and his heart was merry. Now you read that and you might think, well, you know, was he a little tipsy? Was he uh, drunk? Right? But again, there's no indication of that. Again, Boaz is a model of righteousness. He's not perfect, but he is a model of righteousness as he's presented in Ruth. The guy just does what is right in every circumstance he's presented in. When he's presented a, an opportunity to compromise, he does not compromise. Right? So he's, he is a good role model in that sense. So I, I confidently would say there's no drunkenness, there's no tipsiness here. Right? It's actually interesting that the word that, that is used here, when he says his heart was merry, that word merry is actually, the, the Hebrew word, is actually used in the in the beginning of verse uh, this chapter in verse 1 where Naomi says shall I not seek a state of rest for you that it may be well with you that word well can also be translated Mary it's the same Hebrew word so this this state of like it's just, it's just a state of, of of pleasant you're just pleased you're just satisfied everything is going well Boaz has had a massive harvest of barley and wheat remember there's been a time of famine and now he's he's had a hard day's work. He's eaten. He's he's had some drink, and now he's just ready to rest. He's he's just that's what it talks about when when about being merry. Um, and he lied down at the end of the heap of grain. So you're really getting Ruth's perspective on this, even though the narrator's writing it. You're getting Ruth's perspective. She's watching him. She's watching every secretly watching what he's doing, and he sees him. She sees him to go lie down. At the end of the heap of grain, so kind of on the other other side, is is why it's termed that way. And why did he lay down there? When you're the owner of the place, not the threshing floor. When you're the owner of the of the harvest, you can lay down anywhere you want to. So that's all I can tell you. <laughs> he chose that spot. 
Now, why were they sleeping out on the threshing floor? Why wouldn't they go back to the safety of, of Bethlehem, where it's more comfortable to sleep? And the reason is because there were night raiders. Man, this is the time of the judges. There were thieves around, and if there weren't thieves, then there were raiders from other countries that would come and, and take uh, all that you would work for. So he's out there to protect his product, uh, the, the, the wheat and uh, the barley uh, harvest that he's out there. So she comes, she comes and she, she does everything her, her mother-in-law says. She's executing the plan. And so she goes and she sees him lie down. She secretly, quietly goes and um, uncovers his feet and lays down at his feet. So she's not cuddling with him. Okay, so don't get that impression. Some commentators go there and it's just wrong. She's laying at her, his feet, right? And he, she, again, had uncovered his feet. But then things start to go awry. Boaz fell asleep like that. He went sound asleep. So can you imagine? You're rude. Put yourself in our shoes. Everything's gone according to plan except now. Why now? He's not awake. And so Ruth had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And it says in the middle of the night, uh, Ruth is not sleeping. You know that, right? <laughs> She's just not sleeping. She's on pins and needles. What is going to happen? But in the middle of the night, his feet, Boaz's feet, finally get cold enough where he wakes up. And when he does, he's completely startled because there's a woman laying at his feet. And, and we don't know all the reasons he knows it's a woman, but there must have been some shadow or outline where he could tell there's a woman there. And he had no idea who it was. So, he asked the question, not like he did before, who do you belong to? But he asked the question, who are you? Who are you? And Ruth identifies herself by name and describes her as Boaz's maidservant, as a token of humility and showing respect to Boaz. Now, Ruth goes off script here, because at this point, Naomi's script was, just go and uncover his feet, and then he'll tell you what to do. She doesn't. But what does she do? Right? You, you see that. She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant, so spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Now again, that's a strange ancient language to us. But we've seen the language of the spread your wings over, taking refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Boaz used that language in chapter 2, uh, verse 12. That's the exact language that Naomi is doing. So, so now Naomi, I mean, sorry, Ruth is actually taking Boaz's prayer from chapter 2, verse 12, and she's asking Boaz to fulfill that prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz prays, May Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Well, now Ruth is saying, Boaz, you be that refuge for me. You be that refuge. She was asking Boaz to marry her. And again, this the reason, even in our culture, sometimes people don't consider it appropriate for the woman to ask the man to do this. Right? And it for sure, for sure was not the normal thing in Israel. So this is all of this is very odd. It's a risky plan. Right? He's an older guy. She's a younger woman. He's a rich landowner. She's a widow who owns nothing. He's an Israelite. 
she is a Moabite. There's just all sorts of reasons why you could say, Boaz would say, no, I'm not interested. And, and that's another reason for the approach at night. If Boaz said no, it would bring less embarrassment to Ruth, less embarrassment to, to Boaz, and they can both go their separate ways. Obviously, that's not what happens. But Ruth is directly asking Boaz to marry her. Now, again, just think through this, husbands, your function in providing shelter for your wives. Um, and I would even say some of this training yourself to think this way starts when you're a young man. So young men, think through um, how does this, how do you treat your mother? How do you treat your mother? How you treat your mother reflects a lot on how you will treat your future wife once you get past the honeymoon phase. So train yourself to provide protection uh, for your mother, for your your sisters. It's good training for your marriage later on. Again, a God-given application of, of this. Now Ruth tells Boaz why she asked him to marry her. She doesn't just say, spread your wings over me because I think you're really cool. Or I think that I'm a widow in desperate need and you're a rich man and you can take care of me. What does she say? She says, for you are a what? Kinsman redeemer. The the word kinsman redeemer, actually it's one word in Hebrew, but in English to help us understand it, it's it's that close relative redeemer. Um, the, the word redeemer, the Hebrew word for redeemer that's used here is, is used 118 times in the Old Testament. And you've got 23 of those occurrences in Ruth. Look at Ruth. Look how short it is. Four chapters. So in all the New Testament, all the Old Testament, 118 times is how many times this word appears. And it appears 23 times in Ruth. That's nearly 20%. of the occurrences of this word occur in Ruth. What does that help you do? It helps you understand this is a major theme of the book of Ruth. The Redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. Who's a kinsman redeemer? Well, if you had time to, to, if we had time, we would go to to Numbers and we'd go to Leviticus. Um, I'll give you the chapters. You can look at them later. Leviticus 25 and 27. uh, Leviticus 25 and 27. Numbers 5 and 35. We won't take time to go look at those, but but if you were to go look at those, kinsman redeemer has a had a specific function. It actually had five responsibilities listed in, in the Mosaic Law. A kinsman redeemer was to buy back land that was sold due to financial hardship. So if an Israelite uh, found himself um, needing to pay off debt, he could sell his land, pay off the debt, and then later the closest kinsman redeemer who was able to do could buy that land back for him, redeem that land. A kinsman redeemer was to buy back a house that was sold due to financial hardship. So again, this is like the land, but it involves someone's home. They've sold their home to pay a debt that they otherwise couldn't pay. Then you have someone who is a kinsman redeemer come to buy that back, buy that house back. Sometimes people got into really hard financial places where even selling their land and their homes didn't work. They had to sell themselves. So a kinsman redeemer the responsibility was to actually buy back that that person who had sold himself into slavery, to purchase them out of that slavery, to redeem them from that slavery. A kinsman redeemer was also 
identified, he was supposed to receive the restitution um, from sins uh, for uh, the next of kin. And then fifthly, a kinsman redeemer was to avenge the blood of the relative. So if if a person was murdered, right, that was to be investigated, but if it was indeed murdered, then though the, uh, the Israelites were to take the murderer, capture him, and the first person to cast a stone against that person would be the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was to take justice, be the first one to take justice against the murderer who had killed his relative. So he was an avenger of the blood of his relatives. So those are the only five circumstances or five specific responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer in the whole New Testament, Old Testament. Doesn't really match what's going on in Ruth, does it? There's none of that going on. There's not much. There's a little bit of land mentioned later on in chapter four, as we'll see. But up to this point, there's been no mention of the land. There's no mention of slavery. There's no mention of a destitute place. There's you know, so obviously no one's been murdered. There's no need for restitution. So all this shows us that this term is not being used in a technical sense. Ruth is not looking to the Old Testament law and saying, Boaz, you have a duty and responsibility. You know, be, and to do this. Um, what does this show us? It, it's showing us really that that Ruth is asking Boaz to fulfill a duty that she needs and that Naomi needs, but that he doesn't have to do. He doesn't have to do it. And that's one of the things you're going to see about Boaz. Is Boaz doesn't need the law of God to tell him what to do. It sort of mimics what Jesus is trying to get us as his disciples to, to realize. Right? Sometimes Christians are all focused on the law, the law. Do we have to obey the law? Do we have to not obey the law? You've missed the complete point if you're asking that. God wants you to do the right thing without the law. Because he's written the law of God on your heart. You want to do the right thing. That's called the royal law of love. Is what James calls that in the New Testament. Well, that's what that's what Boaz is going to do. And that's what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. You know, to, to do what is right. I we need redemption. And really, Ruth is not thinking just of herself. That's, that's why she goes off script, I think. Because Naomi was just thinking of, kind of, in a sense, marriage for Ruth, getting Ruth married to Boaz. But Ruth wants that, but she wants that also to provide for Naomi. And you're going to see something amazing happening at the end where, where Naomi is even redeemed. There's some interesting things that go on when we get there in chapter 4. Again, the theme of, of one of the themes of Ruth is that of Redeemer. And this isn't just pointing to, to Boaz. Obviously, for Ruth, Boaz was her Redeemer, ended up being the Redeemer. But this is really pointing to the fact that God is a Redeemer. You know, the first time the Hebrew word is used and uh, for, that it's used here for Redeemer, it's Goel. It, it, if the first time that's used, it's used to describe God in all of Scripture. When, when uh, Israel is given a blessing to Joseph's two sons, right? he describes there at the end of Genesis, he describes God being his redeemer who has rescued him or delivered him from all of the evil of his life. And that's the first time that word is used. 
And that's really how Ruth is using the term. She's asking Boaz to deliver her from, from her destitute situation. And really this points to the fact that God is our Redeemer. Uh, the book of Isaiah uses the word this word Redeemer a lot and develops the idea that God is the Redeemer. You know, takes that the nuggets of gold that were placed in Genesis and develops that. It's a major theme in the book of, of Isaiah. But then it becomes uh, even more clear in the New Testament that not only is God a Redeemer, but Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. That He is the Redeemer of His people. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world that He would redeem His people from their sins. I just have to ask you, is Christ, Jesus Christ, your Redeemer today? Are you trusting in Him as your Redeemer? Because you are mortal like everybody else in this room. And one day you're going to die. And you're going to face your maker, Yahweh. You're going to face him. You can face him as judge or you can face him as redeemer. How would you want to face him? You can't avoid him. He invites you to meet him as redeemer. And you do that by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Believing that he is indeed God of very God and man of very man. That he died for your sins on the cross. He was buried in the grave and he was resurrected in newness of life. And he reigns on high and is building his church. And he offers salvation to all who, who believe in him. Say believe, just not your, the fact in your head, right? but trusting him. Allow him to be your redeemer today, I beg of you. Now, Notice how Boaz replies, getting back to the text in verses 10 and 11. We're still seeing Ruth trusting but executing the plan. He says, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. He calls her my daughter in a term of endearment, respect for her. Shows you the relationship. He doesn't see her as a prostitute. He doesn't see her as some foreign Moabite woman. He sees her as like close, like his daughter. And in a sense, he's using that too because there's a pretty big age gap between Ruth and Boaz. And we see it in his comment. He goes, you have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first. What was their first loving kindness? Giving up her people, giving up her family, uh, giving up her land, going with Naomi and taking care of Naomi. And that's what he's referring to. But he, he views her proposal for marriage as something that's even better especially from his perspective. It's the same word, Hesed. It's loving kindness. You're not, and he says, you could go after younger men, whether rich or poor. You know, sometimes women choose poor men because they just love that, that dear guy so much they don't care about the riches. Other women go after the rich guys, and so they're going after the rich ones. But that wasn't Ruth. Ruth was going after the man of, who was the Redeemer. Who is of quality character, regardless of his, the fact that he was that he was older than she was. We don't know how much older, right? but enough that Boaz is highlighting the fact that she's a young woman. She could have gone after young men, but she didn't. And so, look at verse eleven. He goes, "Now, my daughter, do not fear." Why would why would Ruth be fearful? Because it's a risky plan. It could have gone really bad. So he's setting her at ease. He's saying, "Don't fear." All that you have said to me, I will, I will do it. I will do it. 
Sounds great. End of story, right? Well, not exactly. Not exactly. There's something that happens. There's a little wrinkle in the plan. Actually, a massive wrinkle. You see it. Verse 12. But but now it is true. I am a kinsman redeemer. So Boaz doesn't deny that fact. He says, however, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. There's somebody closer. We got a hint of that earlier when, when Naomi called him, called Boaz. He is a, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He is a kinsman redeemer. He's not the kinsman redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. And so, can you imagine Ruth? Like, imagine her emotions. She's like high in the sky emotionally when she hears him say, all that I say, all that you say, I will do for you. But then he enters this, he's, he's, he makes this statement, there is a kinsman dreamer closer than I. See, Boaz not only wanted to marry Ruth, wanted to be her redeemer, but he also wanted to do what was right in the eyes of his society, of Bethlehem. And they would recognize that the kinsman redeemer should, the first person who has the right of refusal is the closest relative. The closest relative. And he wasn't going to bypass that. He wasn't going to kind of have any kind of shady dealings in order to get what he wanted. He was going to trust God's providence and loving kindness. Look what he says in verse 13. Here's where Naomi is right. Now, Naomi's plan is kind of wrong because there's things that she didn't foresee. But here's where she's right. Boaz did actually tell Ruth what she should do. Verse 13. Stay this night. And it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As Yahweh lives, lie down until morning. Man, can you imagine what was going through her head? Here's this wonderful man she had met, she had talked to, she's ready to, you know, to give her life to this man. And now there's a Mr. So-and-so introduced. She's never met. And Mr. So-and-so could end up being her husband. That's pretty scary. So, again, just put yourself in her shoes. All is going on. But she listens to Boaz and stays. Why, why was it important that she stay at night? I remember it's the middle of the night when this conversation is going on. It would be dangerous for Ruth to go home in the dark alone. Boaz was concerned for her safety. So he tells her to keep lying at his feet. Again, they're not, they're not doing anything romantic. She's lying at his feet. I guarantee that neither Boaz nor Ruth slept the wind the rest of the night. Which is why they could get up when it's beginning, just beginning to get light. So she lay at his feet, right, uh, until morning and rose before one can consider another. So here we're moving kind of from the trusting and executing to the trusting and waiting phase. Ruth has to trust Yahweh, but wait. There's nothing further for her really to do in this matter. She laid his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. Again, she left then because of the scandalous nature of her being on the threshing floor at night with Boaz. She didn't want to embarrass Boaz and Boaz didn't want her uh, to be embarrassed or be thought poorly of. Um, so that's why there she would leave before it got really light. But And then he gives this instruction. Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. It kind of introduces the fact that there were others around. We don't, we don't know uh, how many were around. But remember, Boaz had a crew that was helping him harvest his fields. 
that same crew would have been helping him with the threshing and the winnowing. Right? And they would have also lied down on the threshing floor to help provide protection. So there were other people on the threshing floor. And likely, they, they would not have recognized Ruth because of the darkness, but they would have recognized the fact that, that um, there was a woman on the threshing floor. But Boaz doesn't just send her away empty-handed. Look what he does. He says, give me the cloak that is on you. And this is a, a different word for cloak, uh, something that would have been um, a, more of an outer, uh, almost like a shawl or something like that. But it was strong enough to carry grain. She says, give me, give me that. Uh, hold that out. And he gave her six measures of barley. Now, your scriptures say six measures because that's what the Hebrew scriptures say. It doesn't tell us actually six of what? Six, what kind of measures? Earlier, uh, Ruth gleaned, and, and it tells us in the, in the text that she had gleaned um, an ephah, a barley. Um, now, so scholars have tried to figure out, well, how much grain did, did Boaz actually give her? So, we don't actually know. Um, so, if you do six ephahs, that's 180 pounds at the minimum. Too much. Um, cloak couldn't handle that much. And probably Ruth couldn't either. Uh, six seahs, which is another form of measurement at the time, was anywhere from 60 to 100 pounds. Um, again, she Ruth could probably carry that, but could a shawl handle that much? Probably not. Six omers, which is smaller, was somewhere between 18 to 30 pounds. Seems more reasonable. Uh, but it could be that Boaz is just scooping this with his hands. And as she holds her shawl out, he's just giving her six massive scoops, and that's why the text doesn't tell us exactly what the unit of measurement was. Because Boaz was just being generous and said, you know, to, to go home. He didn't want her to go home empty-handed, as we see later in the text. After this... Your scriptures say that she, in verse uh, 15, she went into the city. It's actually a textual debate on this. So if you look at the notation in your Bible, you'll see that um, in, down there at your footnotes, it'll say um, most some scriptures have he. Uh, so it's a debate, did Boaz go into the city or is it Ruth to go into the city? The storyline kind of follows Ruth, so that's why your Bible uses she instead of he. Um, with that, she went in the city and she came to her mother-in-law. Now, her mother-in-law, the way it's translated in, in the LSB says, how did it go, my daughter? Which is a valid translation. But the question is, who are you? It's the same question that Boaz asked her. Who are you? Why? Could it be that Naomi didn't recognize her? Well, it could be. Right? So we're dealing with a matter of spec speculation. But the reason that the LSB and other Bibles translated, how did it go for you, my daughter? Is because she, really she's asking the question, who do you belong to? Who are you? Are you, you know, did things go well? And are you now belonging to Boaz? So that's why it's asked, how did it go? And she tells her, all the man did for her. And, and we get a report of something that happened on the, on the threshing floor that we weren't told earlier. She said, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. So again, we see an example where Boaz is not just taking care of Ruth, Take care of Ruth and Naomi. It becomes important. Uh, important. It's important now, but it's important more in chapter 4. So we get to the place where she says, Sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. 
What's going to happen? Will the plan, will the risky plan work or not? Will the tension isn't resolved here and it's not resolved until the next scene? So we've read ahead, so we know the answer, but but there's about a tension that the writer of Ruth is placing here. He wants to say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know how. You're going to have to wait until you see how it works out. Now you can read ahead, obviously, so you know how it works out. But I'm trying to put you in the shoes. Or what, the, or what the narrator is trying to make you feel like that apprehension, that tension, that cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Now, we talked about the Doolittle Raid in the beginning. Um, that Doolittle Raid on Japan happened in April 18, 1942, just about four months after the Pearl Harbor attack. Pretty fast for that to happen. Um, and it was successful in so many ways. It was a devastating, uh, really the Chinese took a devastating blow uh, for us to do that. Um, tens of thousands, if not up to 100,000 Chinese were murdered by the Japanese because of them hiding the U.S. airmen and helping them to escape. Um, so there was, a, there was a high human cost for that that's often not highlighted in history. But from a military standpoint, it was a success. Japan was forced to recall um, Troops back to Japan, morale was lowered in Japan, and morale in the United States was greatly boosted. So it was tremendous success. But there was something much more important that happened that the U.S. military never intended. There were 16 planes that took off. On the last plane that took off, it flew over Japan uh, and then had to crash land in China. But they didn't have enough fuel to get farther into China, so they crash landed in Japanese-controlled China. They were quickly captured. They were treated horribly. If you've ever seen the movie Unbroken, you have an idea of what they endured. They were not released until like the end of the war. So they endured 40 months of torture, brutality, solitary confinement, near starvation. Three of them were, uh, plus the other crew members that were caught, three of them were executed by the Japanese. The rest nearly starved. The bombardier of, of crew number 16 said this. He, he would later reflect. He said, the bitterness of my heart against my captors seemed more than I could bear. Because he had seen, he had experienced brutality, the ugly pit of, of just demonic brutality. He had seen some of his buddies be executed. But he says, the bitterness of my heart against my captors seemed more than I could bear. And yet God did something amazing in those men's lives. For reasons that I don't understand, I haven't seen any history um, historians to explain this, the Japanese allowed the men to have a Bible, a tattered Bible, an old Bible, but a Bible. And so God used those horrifying experiences that they went through to draw them to himself. Even the ones that were executed are said to have come to know, many of them have come to know Christ before they were executed. When the four of the of those who survived that ordeal were released, they wrote a joint statement that I want to read to you. We were not what you would call religious men before we were captured. We went to Sunday school and church when we were kids. We memorized Bible verses and listened to sermons and said grace at meals. But we never really understood the meaning behind those words and the source of strength they represented in our lives. 
We were given the Bible to read. We found in its ripped and faded pages a source of courage and strength we never realized existed. The verses we memorized as children suddenly came alive and became as vital to us as food. We put our trust in the God we had not really accepted before and discovered that faith in his word could carry us through the greatest peril of our lives. Unquote. The, the bombardier of crew number 16 who talked about the great anguish and the hatred in the soul towards his captors was Jacob the Shazer. Listen to how one biography highlighted Jacob's transformation. Corporal DeShazer was transformed by what he read in the Bible. The Lord revealed to him during those miserable hours alone in his cell that he wanted to give the Japanese people an illustration of the meaning of forgiveness. Jake was to become a walking object lesson. Upon his release, Jake rushed home to earn a Bible degree from Seattle Pacific College. By the way, before he could rush home, he actually had to recover because he was such in poor health. But as soon as he could, he, he did go to Bible college. And then um, he went, um, he returned to Japan with his new bride, Florence, as a free Methodist missionary. Now, the Shazer was um, noted the significance of his return to Japan. This is what he said. This time I was not going as a bombardier, but I was going as a missionary. How much better it is to go out to conquer evil with the gospel of peace, unquote. And the Shazer would go on to have quite an impact in Japan. He would write a gospel track that would bring Mitsu uh, Fuchada, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but Mitsu Fuchada um, to Christ. And the significance of, of uh, Mitsu was the fact that Mitsu was the commander of the air raid on Pearl Harbor, the one who cried out, Bora, Bora, Bora. So, or Bora, Bora, Bora. Um, but the point is, he came to know Christ. And actually, the Shazer and uh, Mitsu actually ministered together uh, before thousands of Japanese. The Lord just, just did a marvelous work. And the Shazer was a missionary there with his wife for 30 years. 30 years. The U.S. military never planned on that. Be, that plan was necessary for many Japanese to know Christ. The confinement was necessary for many in, Jap in Japan to know Christ. And ultimately, the Japanese defeat was necessary so that many in Japan would come to know Christ. Sometimes the trajectory of history has been changed by risky plans that in the providence of God work. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over all details. That there's not a, a single rebel molecule anywhere in the universe. Lord, we just ask for your help to, to live for you and in light of your providence and sovereignty. Lord, use our lives to be missionaries, to be ambassadors for Christ. That we would be living illustrations of forgiveness to those around us who don't know Christ. Lord God, just use us as your church to make disciples for Jesus Christ, for your namesake. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. 
You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.